Oh. And we're live. I'm here with the martyred Pastor Jim. I hear the martyrdom was greatly exaggerated. Well, you know. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing good, Caleb. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. You know, apparently orcas are a protected class on Twitter. <laughs> because when you post kill them all and it's about orca whales, you get permabanned with no warnings. <laughs> orca, really? They, 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 they're orcas. Yeah, uh, to be fair, the post was just kill them all, and it was quoting <laughs> something about orcas, but no warning, no strikes, account gone forever. <laughs> orcas. Yeah. That, that's, how, that's how Catholic Orca maintains its Twitter account. Yeah, it, that's it how. is. <laughs> that's the secret. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we're going to sit down and talk about uh, history today. Uh, this comes in with Twitter. This kind of... You, you, you studied history, if I remember correctly, correct? Yes, I did. Um, as, as far as having a degree in something carries any weight in our <laughs> circles, I do have a degree in history. Here's my take on the whole degree thing. If you're, an, if you're a friend, then your degree means something. If you're, not a, if you're not a friend, it does not mean anything. You know what? Friend-enemy <laughs> distinction is everything. Yes, it is. <laughs> But uh, so let's get into this. Um, general history saying real quick. So yeah. what are the uh, so my read history? I like to start with you know um, closest I can to the event. You know if I could find like a who was it who wrote who was it who wrote uh, the twelve Caesars? You remember who that was? Yeah, it was like Caesar? twelve Caesars. It was uh, was it twelve or eleven? There was some guy who wrote a book called Twelve Caesars. He was a he was Tutonius, a Tetonius. Yeah. Um, like that's a good example of history I like to read. You know, if I can find a guy who's like of the time period writing about the time period was in living was in either one generation or living memory. That's where I like to start with my history. So, um, what is that called? And if you can break down like the the, the different um, degrees away from the event and what those labels are, labels are called. Yeah. Um. So that's called a primary source or a, a primary document in like when we're talking about studying history. And generally speaking, that is the um, it is the best picture you can get of what it was like in a time period is through mm -hmm. a primary source, um, because they they are the closest to it, right? Um, it's the you you think of terms of phrase from the last thirty years. Mm -hmm. um, the phrase booty call and butt dial in 200 years, people are going to look at those in writings from today and think they meant the same thing. Mm. Uh, so the, cl so the closest you can get to it, the better, because they're going to be using the right vernacular for describing what they're talking about. Mm. Uh, if you can't find primary sources, then we get what are called secondary sources, which is when someone is writing specifically about primary sources, 
um, and telling us about them and kind of interpreting them for us. This is a lot more common in archaeology mm. um, rather than pure history. And it's something you have to watch out for um, because archaeologists uh, are either the best or the absolute worst people in the field of history. Um, I watched a YouTube short today where uh, the woman was talking about how they kept finding these giant hand axes. Now, the giant hand axe itself is a primary source. The lady mm -hmm. telling us about it is a secondary source. And she's like, we don't know if they were ceremonial or religious or just a status symbol. When I look at a giant hand axe and go, oh, there was a giant who needed an axe. <laughs> pretty reasonable, uh, pretty reasonable. <laughs> Right. So that's where you need to watch out for secondary sources because there's a you you get the bias of the primary source if it's mm. a written document and you get the bias of the interpreter of that mm. primary source. That that handout example it reminds me so much of what I have a an issue with like modern everything is that they, there's no acceptance of if it's not around today, like and it's not the attitude they, they claim to hope, but really the attitude they have that we're all no giants around today, therefore there were no giants back then. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. just it's so it's so anti-whimsy. Um and so stupid. And I don't have the the information in front of me right now, but that anti-whimsy is a coordinated uh point of view that was enforced by the Smithsonian Institute. Not surprised. Uh, and a lot of things were destroyed that would point anything that didn't fit with the worldview of the first Smithsonian director, he just destroyed. Uh, so a lot of stuff got destroyed that shouldn't have, that would point to things like that. So, oh, where's all the evidence for it? Well, the people who didn't believe it burned it to the ground. Um, yeah. I knew I, I knew I hated him for a good reason. I wasn't sure <laughs> so what the reason was yet, but I knew, it, I knew I'd find it eventually, and he just gave it to me. So thank you for that. Yeah. And then you get um, your tertiary sources, um, which are uh, generalized. These are your textbooks, your reference books um, that aren't trying to interpret, but really aren't informative. So those are kind of the three levels that um, I dealt with uh, when I was learning history and what that I tr mm. keep track of as I interact with it. Mm. Would um someone like Sucristides, uh history of the Peloponnesian War, I don't that wouldn't count. The, I don't I don't think he was witnessing the speeches himself. Obviously, I think he had a count of the speech. Would that count as a secondary source? Yes. So that would be okay. a secondary source where um where he is recording something that happened after it happened. Primary mm -hmm. sources are from people that were there. Um. So, uh, a good I'll give example. a fictional example, like Anne Frank's diary, a completely fictional example, but, um, yeah, I was going to say uh, a good example is the gospel of Luke compared to mm. the gospel <laughs> of John. Mm. Luke's gospel is a secondary source. Luke is recording eyewitness events, but he's not mm. crediting who he's interviewing. He's amalgamating it. Mm -hmm. John was there. Mm. I can't remember who I heard this, but um, I know some 
historians, some like biblical uh, textual historians. Like I don't know, what the, I don't know the exact term because so many people who study the Bible because I mean, for obvious reasons. I don't. There's so many different like sub studies involved in it, so I don't know what you call someone who's a textual historian of the Bible. If you that's that's what they call it, that's what they call it, I guess. Yeah. Who uh, um they claim that some one of Zahn's sources was uh was Mary, which makes sense to me given how Jesus gave him be married to her. And I just whether that's true or not, it's cool enough that I'm going to accept that as true. Yeah. You know? And um, that but makes I don't know, it's cool. Like John wasn't there when Jesus was born, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like he wasn't there before he was called. Um, things like that. Mm. Biblical scholars. No, biblical scholars it feels like couple has a wide range of topics, David. Sorry, David's commenting. Yeah. I, I think biblical scholars cover such a wide range of topics there. It feels like um good zin or two zin would like the term for what I was trying to say. Yeah. I um, get what you're saying there, Caleb. Yeah. Let's see what else is I want. Oh, no, real quick, I'm gonna jump to just throughout we're talking throughout, I'm gonna jump to some of the questions I got DM'd or asked on Twitter. Yeah. This one comes from Mike. Mike O. Mike of Paul, aerospace Kristen, history. What is it and why it be like that? <laughs> um, the most generalized definition I can give is history is the written record of mankind. If it's not hmm. written down, it's not history. Uh, and it be like that because mankind is bad at writing things down and bad in general. That is very true. So uh, if someone wanted to get started in studying history, where would you say is like, not like we're going to time periods next, but like, where would you say is a good um, introductory book or introductory period? Like, if someone wanted to get started studying history, where would you, where would you direct them? What would you recommend? Um, I know that's a very general question because history is, you know, old. <laughs> history goes back forever. Um, yeah. But where would you say someone should... Like what's a good like, I know I know a lot of people say Tom Holland books are like a good way to start reading history because he is very easy reading style, you know. Yeah. Um I I I would say find um find what interests you personally and then branch out from there. That's the nice mm. thing about um history compared to um other subjects in in schooling is math you got to start at the basics and build your way up science Mm -hmm. generally speaking you start at a ground level you work your way up although there are science is more siloed than math history um unless you start right now and work backwards or start at the garden of eden and work forwards um anywhere you jump in you can both deep dive that section you could spend your Mm -hmm. entire life studying the year 1705 um and learn everything there is to know about what happened that year or you can Mm -hmm. pick a spot and you can branch forwards and backwards from it so find what interests you and then work out from there would be um, my suggestion i Mm -hmm. the i remember falling in love with history playing um the Age of Empires and Civilization games, and I would spend <laughs> hours reading the little encyclopedias uh, mm. that went along with it. That is some uber nerd stuff right there. Yeah. I respect that. I respect it. Uh, this, is a, this is a fun question. I was I was reading uh, Chesterton's short um, History of England. Okay. Which is very enjoyable. I will say um, 
I don't think I got. I don't think I fully got it. Got all out of got out of it. All that was to be got out of it because I'm not English. He assumes a lot on the reader. It'd be a so like if I wrote a history about America, I could assume a lot from the American re- listen reader. I could mm-hmm. not assume a lot from you know other readers. He does the same with England. So he just references you know, um, what's his name? He references uh, Beckett. Yeah. This and then like two chapters later, then he explains a little bit more about Beckett. But I still don't really know who Beckett is in this context. I heard Beckett. I saw a Pirates of the Caribbean. Yes. You know, so he assumes a lot. And, I, and so he has a lot of good stuff in the book. And I would love to go back to or to have a better understanding of uh, English history. What I decide where I'm going to start with my English history is King Arthur. And so okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start King I'm going to start with old King Arthur stories and then go from there. Actually, find history historical stories after that, but start with King Arthur. Okay. Um, but but in the, in, anyway, in the uh, book, he mentioned the history. Most people do history studying, uh, they pick a time and go forward. And he said, if you uh, a fun, a good way to do it would be to pick something you like and then today and study it backwards. You know, so you say you pick a lamppost and study the lamppost from the lamppost to lights to electricity, electricity to fire, and then study it backwards, studying history backwards from uh, current trends and events. What I found that to be a pretty interesting idea. What's your take on that? Is so if we do history forward, backwards, does it depend on what civic scene you want to study is, or is that more of a, a personal decision as well? I really like that idea um, because what that lets you do is it lets you ask why and work your way back. You look mm-hmm. at something that's happening today, something that exists today, and you can look at it and you can say, why is that there? And work your way backwards, which is a very uh, Chestertonian idea, like with his fence, right? You mm-hmm. you find out why is it there, work your way backwards from it. Um, and you can do that about anything that's going on in the world today. You can look at, okay, why is, uh, I don't know, why is the Suez Canal important? And you can work your way backwards hundreds of years on that question mm. um why do does the united states care about what happens in whatever place and you can work your way backwards from that um and i i really like that idea um it is not unfortunately it's not well suited to teach history that way in schools just because of mm. students moving around and things like that if you started backwards with a student it would um, it would probably throw them off unless you had control of the Department of Education and made that a, a top-down mm. transformation. What's a, if only I could if only I continued running for president and then drop out, we could have, we could have solved this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um. Yeah. I, I, um. I think a lot of people nowadays, when they go to history, they're seeing things happen today, and then they're kind of curious about like um. Well, before I get to that next point, let me back up a little bit. There's a really, um, it seems like the generations, like my generation, our generation, major generation uh, ahead of us, the um, the older millennials, really were just taught a lot of propaganda, which itself was bad. Zen, Zen Alpha and younger Zen Z know really nothing about history. I met a guy who didn't know what World War II was. <laughs> yeah, that you know? um, that doesn't surprise me. Um, the, the, the millennials, the older Gen C, um, a lot of them, they were, they were taught lies and believed them. Uh, what I have noticed is that Gen Alpha, younger Gen Z just assume that they are being lied to and don't 
take in anything because of mm. it. Which is, I, I gotta say, I kind of find, I find maybe it's that's a, I think that's a good trend. I don't think it's good in and of itself, but I think where it's trending is good because I was able to explain the actual, you know, I was able to explain the Bolsheviks coming over the border after World War One and Germany not being able to protect their borders and the influx of porn and the place and rules and the, sec- the German Institute of Sexology and all those things with zero pushback. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so there are all benefits I think that are going to be coming out of this if. The other thing I'm, you know, this is going to be a bit more of a political thing. Um, we have to make history interesting to people. Like, mm-hmm. uh, who's very popular on Twitter and TikTok right now is that Roman Helmet guy who makes those fun edits about historical figures. Yep. Well, honestly, I love that because that kind of goes back to the great man approach of history, which is how I think history should be done. You know, Plutarch should be required reading, in my opinion. His, uh, his Roman and Greek lives are probably my favorite history books. Okay, yeah. Um... That gets into a little bit of um, historiography, uh, the the study of history. Um, What do you, how do you even approach history as a topic? Um, There's a good book on it, on historiography called History and Fallacies by Carl Truman, um, who kind of a boomer con Christian, Presbyterian, uh, like not an enemy writing this book, but definitely like old guard, complete normie. So the book is good, but you just have to be aware of that going into it. It's like your um, uncle on Thanksgiving when he agrees with you. You're like you said, you, you agree with me, but you don't. You said you if you knew what I actually saw, you wouldn't be agreeing with me. Right? Yeah. You exactly. Um, and I, I really like his book. Uh, on historiography and he points out that there um, are three uh, perspectives on history and I'm blanking on what oh yes the three perspectives on history are um, cyclical which is what kind of ancient Greeks uh, believed if you look at their mythologies it's like hey hmm? isn't that also what Spangler held to Yes. Cyclical history? Okay, okay. I know, I know um, academic agents very big on that. Yeah, so we're get, we are we have cycles that repeat through history. You look at Greek mm-hmm. mythology and you have the, the, the progenitors or whatever they're called who were before the Titans, and then you have the Titans, and then you have the gods, and uh, it, it's, this, it's this cycle that's repeating itself. Mm-hmm. Um, you have progressive history, which is just this idea that as time goes on, things get better uh, and things always have to keep getting better. And that's a very humanistic um, view of it. And that's kind of like the meme where it's like, no one in the fifties was happy Um, (laughs) because if people in the fifties were happy, it means things aren't getting better. The past has to be worse than it is right now. Mm -hmm. Otherwise progress isn't happening. Um, and then the third view of history he gives is the providential view that God is influencing events towards a specific end goal that will eventually okay. happen. I'm glad you got to that one because I was actually going to ask. Um, cause I was reading Academic Agents, um, Prophets of Doom, which is all on like the cyclical, the, uh, the cyclical history and the main, like, main, like, um, 
from ancient days to now, people who were like talking about it. And he said in an interview, he wanted to include a Christian figure like St. Augustine, but he realized Saint, no really, Christians really don't have a cyclical view, and we don't have a wig. He claimed, he, he, I think he claimed we, more, we had more of a wig view, which I don't think is accurate. I think one of the key things in Revelations is that it is going to get worse before it gets better. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I do like the providence of you you brought up that. I think that's actually a, a, the correct um, lens of how Christians should be viewing history. Mm-hmm. And um, what I like, he doesn't talk about the 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 great man view of history, that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I'm laughing at Springhouse's uh, comment, things are getting better <laughs> in this economy. Uh, nope. Um, <laughs> But he doesn't include the great man idea, but you can Mm. see it fitting into any of the three. Cycles are pushed by great men. Uh, Progress is happening through great men, or God is working through great men. Mm. Now, I I think um, I got, I remember I said this a while ago, a friend of mine, I was driving past uh, the local public school here. Which is just awful. If anyone knows about the Bato schooling system, they know it's just not great. <laughs> you know, it's it's that's a joke. Um, you know, people used to fly Bato principals all over the country to speak at conferences. For real. For real. Florida used to have the third best education system in the country. You're, you're joking. I'm not joking. In the <laughs> late in the late nineties, Florida was rated top three. What happened? I could talk about that for a long time. That's, that's what I wrote podcast. my final paper on in college. Was well, what well, well, that's the second podcast we're going to have to schedule again for the, for the future because I want to hear that. I would love to talk about that at another time. That that sounds interesting. Um, I, I was thinking about great men history because I um I was listening to I think it's Andrew Roberts' book Napoleon. Um, which is if anyone hasn't listened to that yet, definitely check it out. It's one of the it's, it's probably the most enjoyable. Um, I always get this wrong, but. Uh, Bio- autobiographies? Biographies. Biography. Autobiography yeah. would be Napoleon wrote it. Yes, biographies. Which I think Napoleon wrote memoirs, didn't he? he wrote, yeah. I think he wrote a political memoir. Uh, anyway, it's a great biography of Napoleon. And one of the key things I know is that Napoleon, as a case, that he loved really about the great men of history. Because as a case that he went to, it was all done by people who were building the great man theory. And so he just wanted to be Alexander. He wanted to be Napoleon. It's always he wanted to go to India. What's just so he can go past where Alexander went? I don't think he had any value in India, because what value is there in India? But he wanted to go past where Alexander went. Um, and I, I don't know. I think the his great men of history really, um, we, how do I put this? There are no, we denigrate ideas of great men, you know, even in, I mean, in our fiction and superheroes now. I think, mm-hmm. I think Green Goblin said the best in Spider- the first Spider Man film. They yeah. love a hero, but they love to see a hero fail. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, that movie was just ahead of its time. Speaking of super, it's, it's incredible. I mean, really, we peaked in superhero movies with the first few superhero yeah. movies. Yeah, Spider Man 1 and 2. And even, I, I'll even defend Spider Man 3. Yeah. I'm gonna go on a little tangent. The end of Spider-Man three, when Tobey Maguire forgives of uh, Flip Marker for killing his uncle, that's what the new Spider-Man game was missing. There's a whole little cutscene in the end of the new Spider-Man game where Miles straight up says he can't forgive the guy, can't forgive Lee mm-hmm. for killing his dad, and it's like that's the opposite of what it should be. The point should be that he forgives him anyway. Yes, you know that's well, the whole point. <laughs> um, that's just, uh, I don't want to get into that little rant about Spider-Man Spider-Man game because it sucked. But um, so so Tobey Maguire Spider-Man. Based mm-hmm. in forgiveness pilled, 
Yes. New Spider-Man cringe and vengeance pilled. So stupid. Then you have Andrew Garfield Spider-Man straight up saying, breaking promises is the best kind. It's like, shut the fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. As much as I like Andrew Garfield as an actor because he was in Hacksaw Wids, that ending mm-hmm. line of Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man was just awful. Yes. Um, but anyway, we, we don't really have Great Man. I feel like Great, great Man theory of history is not only one a great way to study history because you get to read about the greats and how cool they were. Incredibly motivational for young men. Mm-hmm. You see these great men in action, you know. Um, that is almost certainly the reason it is so pushed back against in academic circles. Mm-hmm. Um, they they don't want people inspired by reading this um, because you get a Napoleon when you have young autistic men who love reading about <laughs> cool people from the past. You get Napoleon. Um, so true. <laughs> That's what happens. Uh, and so, no, uh, you, you, instead we get movies like, I haven't watched it yet, but everything I heard, the new Ridley Scott Napoleon movie where. Yeah, I haven't heard anything good yet, Izo. Exactly. Uh, Which is a oh, shame. Like the, the half the movie is about his relationship with his first wife and. You know, the fact that she's his first wife should tell you that wasn't the focus <laughs> of his life. Yeah. I can't remember. I can't, there's a great quote. I think it's like one of Napoleon's sons who said Josephine was not the woman Napoleon should have married. She was a, <laughs> a cruel, vindictive woman. And he had like a whole, like, like three paragraphs about how much he could not stand Josephine and how much he <laughs> crippled his, his, his dad. And I'm like, so true. <laughs> so true. <laughs> It's a great sigma grind set. It's a great yes. It's a great meme, and it's a it's of a solar system, and it has a Napoleon on the horse of overlay overlay it overlay on the solar system, and it says the Napoleonic Empire if we didn't marry that bitch. <laughs> and that's just a meme, <laughs> and it's a great meme. <laughs> that is funny. Mm. But that's the about history. I'm talking to my friends about history or my coworkers. And they say history is boring. You're just hearing about you know old people doing things that don't really matter anymore. Like you get to read about Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon. Yeah, you know, uh, like I, we 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 had a moment at work where we um changed up exactly how we did something, and I said I said um, the die has been cast. We've crossed mm-hmm. the Rubicon. No one got it. You know, no one got. It. There's no culture. Not the same. Yeah, that um makes me think of what uh, Cato posted, um, ironically enough, uh, when you <laughs> ask for questions, his meme where it's the, the modern historian, oh, the price of bananas went up by 3%, so we know inflation was hitting this part of blah, 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 and the ancient historian is, I wasn't there, uh, let me tell you about a dream my cousin had about the speeches, <laughs> word for word. Um, beautiful (laughs) and it makes me think uh of how people from our generation and younger instead of saying so and so said this we'll say so so and so was like and we might not give an exact quote but we're giving the gist of it Mm. um and capturing that essence of the events the spirit of the event was what was important to those ancient historians uh, mm. rather than capturing the letter of the events 
with a sort of materialistic way of viewing like it's the same it's the same way same way science and philosophy has been plagued by materialism history has now been played by like this consumerism almost where it's like well here's the inflation way it's like much as I, I like i like some of lost parts history like i really like his book on education the history of education i think is very good but you try to read like his acts some of his other history like the um history of money and banking in america or conceived in liberty. And like, I don't care about the corn laws. I don't care. I'm sorry, <laughs> Waspard. I'm sure they had some effect on something. I just, I don't care. Tell me what happened, who caused them, and who got rid of them. I don't even know the effects of all the corn laws. I don't care. Right. Um, yeah. So giving us the, the, I think of like Tacitus telling us about the speech that the, um, the Scottish, he wasn't Scottish, they weren't called Scotland <laughs> yet, but the Scottish <laughs> chieftain gave in the battle before fighting against the Romans. Um, it's such a good speech. Mm-hmm. Was it said? Almost certainly not. Um, like, Tacitus was probably making it up, but it captures all of the ideas that he knows that they had that people who didn't want to join the Roman empire had, and he Mm -hmm. puts it in the mouth of, uh, this enemy chieftain. So he doesn't get in trouble for saying them. Um, and it's fantastic. Um, Um, yeah, the thing is great, great historical speeches. I implore everyone go pick up the history of the Peloponnesian war from, um, was it Thucydides? Uh, History of the Peloponnesian War was uh, yes. Okay, pick it up. Listen to the first speech. Go before you even start the full book. Listen to the first speech from each side. Pick a side and then read it through that lens. <laughs> it is it is actually a lot more fun to read to listen to all of the um. Like I, I immediately pick Sparta, Spartans. I'm like, okay, this is my side now because I actually like the um. This opening speech when they were all trying to convince the guy to go to war, and he's like, "Here's why we shouldn't go to war." And he's like, "That's a good point." However, here's why we should again. Um, I just, I, the speeches are engaging, and you're convinced by them. The next guy speaks, well, he made a good point, and you kind of feel like you're in the room. Like that's a good point. That's also a good point. I'm with him. Now I'm with him, and it it makes it so much more. um, It feels alive. It feels like it it feels more like something actually happened. And were the speeches accurate? I don't know. Then he then he's just he wasn't there, you know. I think it was written the maybe I think it was written decades later. Was he did he just transcribe the speeches or did he kind of guess them? Did he actively who were there? I don't know. But it, it captures the spirit of the AIDS, I think, in a much better way than any book written today about it would be. Unless it was by Tom Holland or something. Mm-hmm. Um Jared, I'm trying to train <laughs> myself to always pronounce the C with a K when it's in Latin, because that's how it was to them. Uh, if it is Tacitus, uh, I know that's what 99% of people say, but I'm just trying to teach, to get myself in that habit. Oh, that's cool. I, uh, he's commenting from Twitter. I don't know. You, Swingyard would start with so Twitter comments now. I have no idea. I'm just looking there. Uh, no, I just know he has an X next to everyone else's YouTube on theirs. Oh, yeah. So I guess that may, okay, that's cool. I know you can comment from Twitter now. That's, that's nice. neat. Um, uh, but yeah, there's so many. Um, this is the thing I've been trying to do. I've been trying to listen to, like, I was reading about the Peloponnesian War, or I was listening to. Um, I, I, I count, I count the uh, the trial and death of Socrates has this as much history as philosophy as uh, as fiction. I count them with all three. I don't care. <laughs> um, but then, um, 
I realize I get so much more out of Plato once I, once I finish reading Homo. You know, once I finish yeah. reading the kind of the fiction that inspired the AIDS or the story or the mysteries that inspired the AIDS. And mm-hmm. now that's what that's why when I said earlier, when I'm reading about English history, I started with King also. I think that's also a, a important thing. Like when you're reading about um the Renaissance, you know, read some Dante, you know, then go into yeah. it. You know, or, just like get a get a sense of the AIDS. Even if it's like a later fiction or an earlier fiction, just get a sense of like the ideas of the missiles that were in their minds. Cause um the idea of people are not inspired by great fiction or stories really only makes sense today. You know, people were back then were definitely inspired by fictional stories, especially if they were told they were actual events. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, it would be like I don't know. People approach history today like imagine you are approaching Christianity by only reading theology books and never actually reading the Gospels, never reading mm-hmm. an actual Bible story, just mm-hmm. the theology. That's that's how people engage with history. Of course, it's boring. Yeah, it's oh, that's a great one. Oh, great period. Um, that's the thing. I, I, when it comes to, um, but I think the fiction thing. When it comes, when you get to the French Revolution, that's when I feel like the history is already so exciting, and mm-hmm. so you can see how to put this. Because at that time period, they were so influenced by, but also began to not care as much, you know, about those uh, previous historical events. You really had like the beginning of, I'm sure Chesterton has some great term or great little coined phrase to describe these people. I don't know what it is. I'm sure it's out there. Um, But the, it's always now, you know, that kind of attitude where it's it's now who cares about what happened before. Yeah. Um, that really began to kick off a thing around like after the French Revolution, and so why? Because I, I don't think reading Les Mis is really going to help with um, your understanding of the French Revolution. It might. I, I can't get past the second. I can't get past the second chapter. So maybe I'm wrong. But I, it's just so boring. I don't really think it makes a difference. Well, yeah, and you look at the the philosophy of the French Revolution was so. I don't know how people can look at the events and not go, these guys are just communists. The <laughs> They destroyed the tombs of all the kings that were buried in Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, it was so anti-history and just this, they wanted to change the dating to be from right now at the French Revolution. It was so, um, it was just this eternal now rather mm-hmm. than we're building on anything. Yeah. Uh, and I think that comes through in their literature, also, mm. like you said. Yeah, it's. Um, I will say I, I will defend. I think the same guy wrote Les Mis, also wrote Hunts Back in Notre Dame, which I have not read, but I love the Disney film. You know, okay. so I'll give I'll give that one a pass if it's any good. I don't know. Um, is there any? Not a thing, but I can't think of any good like stories written around the time of the Revolutionary War or the early Americas. You know. Early American like fiction yeah, had, stories. Yeah, we had we had folk we had folk tales, we had folk stories, you know. But I can't think of any like epic fictional stories um, that I could pair with that time period. Can you think of any? Not off the top of my head. Um, I was gonna check when uh, when Dumas was writing because mm. I like his books. Um, but he, okay. So he's like, he was born in 1802. Um, 
died in 1870. Alexander Dumas, French author, <laughs> and he wrote like The Count of Monte Cristo, Three Musketeers, and I enjoy both of those books a lot. Hmm. Um, and I think they help you kind of understand that. Um, Need more period adaptations like Gladiator excelled despite historical inaccuracies. Agreed. Uh, I yep. would say I think the best. This might be a hot take, but I think the best like um, historical movie like that is Three Hundred by Zack Snyder, because I love the fact that the guy who's uh, narrating it is the runner who went back and brought the troops and is inspired with mm -hmm. all the troops to go forward. So any exaggeration about monsters makes sense in trying to inspire the troops. Yeah, <laughs> it it all just works. It it it, it works so well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Three Hundred. Um, it it's great and it. it it's uh, it's the Indiana Jones issue where a lot of historians and archaeologists hate Indiana Jones because <laughs> he doesn't do it right. He's not doing what a, they're supposed to be doing, whatever. Um, and then you get a minority of historians and archaeologists who love Indiana Jones because he gets <laughs> young people interested in history and archaeology. Mm. Um, and, and a movie that takes exaggerations or embellishments with the past that is interesting is so much better than one that tries to be 100% period accurate. Think yeah. of Mel Gibson movies. The Patriot, Braveheart. Yeah. Oh, The Patriot is one of the best movies about America. Oh, it's so good. It's, it's so fantastic. Good. Um, great, 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 great movie. Uh, is it 100% historically accurate? No. They're not making a hundred yard pot shots with a flintlock pistol <laughs> to hit a guy in the no. back who's riding a horse. That's not really happening. But the movie is so good. Yeah. I feel like the only time I won't accept historical inaccuracies about a movie if it takes place during the Confederacy. <laughs> That's the only time I won't accept historical inaccuracies. Like what was that movie? Um oh what was it called? Um oh the movie about uh Quakers during the Civil War. I don't know it. Oh, it's gonna bug me now. I have it on DVD. It was a movie about Quakers in the Civil War, and it's about how the um the, the dad and the son want to go off and fight in the Civil War, and the mom and the daughter's like, "No, we're Quakers. We don't do that. And we don't do that kind of stuff." Um, and of course, it has the South Martin Norse and, and you know pillaging. You know, of course, as of they, course, as they, and as they're they... all. The... Didn't ever do <laughs> exactly. I remember watching my after I realized that I watched it like way younger, and after reading more about you know, after reading uh, Thomas De Lorenzo, watched it again. I'm like, oh my god, I, I cannot enjoy this anymore. I, I, mm -hmm. I, I hate it. <laughs> um, are there, are there any good Confederacy movies about the Confederacy? Good, um, God and Zen Wars. What's that? Write that down, God and God in Generals. I've is pretty good, I know. Please see it. I wonder what the uh, we mentioned. Okay, what are you saying about that? We mentioned archaeologists and like not some of them not like Indiana Jones, and some do. I wonder what the historical, con the uh, archaeological consensus is on someone like Daniel Jackson from uh, Stargate. <laughs> <laughs> Because that's the that's probably the coolest archaeologist ever. He's just like, no, no, it was aliens, and then here's Saw, and here's all the Asgard spaceships, and it's cool. Like that's the that's the coolest one. You know what? I 
I I should ask. I had a great archaeology professor. I should ask him if he ever watched Stargate and what he thought about it. Oh, I'd be, I, if you ever do, let me know because that's that's another great one. Actually, Stargate's a, Stargate's. I could go on a whole rant about why I think why Stargate is probably the coolest sci-fi. Like I, I was a huge Star Trek fan, so I finished off Stargate. Stargate's Atlantis and the universe and all of it just phenomenal from beginning to end. All ten seasons. All five of Atlantis, all two, sadly, only two of Universe. Fantastic sci-fi. Anyone listening to go check it out. Yes, 100%. Stargate, uh, 10 out of 10 show. Um, I never watched through Atlantis, but I did watch Universe, the first season of Universe. Universe. Uh, uh, I, I loved Universe because basically, by, by halfway through season two, even the atheist character is kind of like, no, this might be God. And here's the, here's like, I might believe in divine providence now. Yeah. Like even, uh, the Aces goes to a whole converter where he tries to be nice to people now and no one trusts him. Because like, <laughs> I can't deny this is probably God, guys. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, Stargate it's, it's awesome. was... Uh, <laughs> Stargate and Psych were the... I would get home from school <laughs> and one of those two, my older brother would be watching. So I would just oh, watch Psych it with was so him. good. <laughs> Psych is hands down the best Sherlock Holmes adaptation. Oh, absolutely. People try to say like the um it's monk or it's the uh what's the other one? Um the mentalist. Oh, the, men- oh, the mentalist was awful. I couldn't stand it. Yeah. And then you had the uh the what was the ele- uh elementary? Was that the American Sherlock Holmes? Yeah, that was the American Curtis- one. Was, and then was Curtis Yarvin was in it. Mm-hmm. Which was hilarious. Uh I I give a pass to BBC Sherlock because um it has has um my mom Freeman in it. Yeah. And I, I get he played Bilbo and he also complained about gay people and might have hit his wife at one point. And I just I gotta get I give him a pass. <laughs> no, I like honestly I wished we had gotten more of the Robert Downey Jr. movie. Mm. Yeah. It's a good instead of more Marvel stuff, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> yeah. Like um, like Jared said, more uh historical period adaptations of things. It, Sure, it was steampunky, but it was, hey, here's 1900s, uh, early 1900s, late 1800s London. What was that uh, What was that steampunk True Musketeers that came out a while ago where they had like a battle on, a, on flying blimps? Yeah, that was, um, that was weird. If you want to watch... It was fun, uh, though. If you, yeah, Orlando Bloom as the Duke of Buckingham and... All that. If you want to watch a good, uh, the the Disney Three Musketeers from 1990 or 1995. That's a good one. Right now, um, with Chris O'Donnell as D'Artagnan, Keith or Sutherland. That mm-hmm. one is fantastic. I, I remember the scene where they all go run and add the guys to the um, opening fire app, and they all kind of like close their eyes and deliberately miss. Mm-hmm. It's a great scene. Um, um, Charlie Sheen plays a priest. <laughs> It's fantastic. <laughs> he did. That's right. Oh. Uh, okay. I mean, I yeah, Garrett, best Sherlock. Best everything was Wishbone. Okay. The best version of the Odyssey, the Wishbone. The best What's version wishbone? of Robin, Wishbone. The all of it. <laughs> what was the? I don't know what that is. What's Wishbone? Oh, oh, you're younger than me. Uh, wishbone <laughs> was a TV show about a dog named Wishbone who would act out classic novels and stories, and he would be the main character in them. I, mean, I, I just saw a photo of him pulling back a bow, like he's yeah. Robin Hood. 
that's the end of the Odyssey, where he has to shoot the arrow through all the axes. <laughs> it's so that's if you're interested in history, that's where you start. Wishbone. Wishbone. Beginning of history. Okay. I write it down. Wishbone. Um back to history. Because I I've enjoyed a little this um like talking about fiction and history. Um, cause I think like if you really wanted to understand what the Greeks sought of the um like reading Herodotus, but then also reading like the Greek tragedies about Persia yeah. and stuff, that's read a really the, good combo. Yeah, read their read their plays, get in the mindset, and then you can understand like, oh, when they write this down, it means this, because the 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 poets and the historians and the philosophers that was that was one guy <laughs> it was <laughs> it, it was one person doing all of those things um mm -hmm. plato was in the battles that are being talked about <laughs> socrates was a soldier in the uh, Peloponnesian war the Hopanite, right which I, I always find that i have to bring it up every time someone talks about socrates because it's some like dumb philosopher guy I'm like he was also a veteran yeah, I remember that. Like, this wasn't just some guy convincing the youth. This was a respected veteran who had major complaints against the new government. This yeah, is why this they, was... there's so many reasons to kill him. Yeah, this was a decorated war hero. That's why they were afraid of him becoming a king. Yeah. There was a, I think, if we want to story, I think it was Alcibiades. Not maybe Alcibiades. He had a student of his, uh, possibly a, a level, or at least a, however, how levels worked in Greece, because there's a whole, there's different accounts of whether it was just gay, whether it was cuddly, a bunch of different accounts there. Yeah. But, um, you got a guy who got saw on the ankle or something, and Socrates jumped in and defended him for like several minutes while waiting for reinforcements, single-handedly. So he was not just some dumb, wise guy who walked around asking questions. You know, mm -hmm. he could probably kick your ass. Exactly. And, uh, so it's something I think is very important to remember. But like, why did no one smack Socrates? He was so snarky. It's like, well, he could probably kill you. That's why. Right. Um, that is awesome, Ancient Gardener. Uh, just looking at your comment there. That's really cool. Um, yeah, the, uh, yeah, when Plato's like, oh yeah, we should have philosopher kings who control everything and they should be me. Like, okay, <laughs> he's getting that straight from Socrates, who was in a position to make that happen. Yes. Um, That's... That's a I fun period to study. Yeah, I was going to... That reminded me of something. When you're reading um, anything ancient, ancient Greeks or anything old, um, an important thing to keep in mind when you're reading them is, generally speaking, they are not trying to deceive you. Um, <clears throat> the, the the two assumptions people go go into history a lot of the time with is... One, this person is lying. Again, everyone today is lying. And so um, it, that's an easy thing to get into um, of this assumption that, okay, this, per this person is lying. They're leaving something out. They're trying to pull one over mm -hmm. on me. They're not trying to pull one over on you. They've been dead for 3,000 years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they, they don't care. And the uh, they're... they're Take them at face value, and then the other assumption people have when they go into history is that people in the past were stupid. Mm. Uh, that's just a general assumption people make. Oh, these people were idiots because they believed X, Y, and Z thing that I know is clearly wrong. Gonna blame uh, Wig Siri for that one. Hmm? Gonna blame Wig Siri of history for that one. 
Oh. The wig suit. I'm gonna blame that. I'm blamed down that attitude on that one. Yeah. Um. So people assume people start reading ancient history and they assume that these people are lying and or stupid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where you get this just incredible distrust of ancient sources. Um, like people have been reading the Iliad literally for thousands of years. And for a lot of that time, people thought it was fiction. No one knew where the city of Troy was. No one had found it. What? Clearly, it didn't actually happen because we would know where this giant city was until some guy just went to the place where the Iliad says Troy was and started digging and he found it (laughs) because he assumed that Homer was both intelligent enough to record it correctly and being honest with him and he dug up Troy. It's just, it's so funny because it's such an obvious thing to do. Right? right. Like, it's like, oh, well, we don't know what is, this is clearly fake. We don't, we don't know what Troy is. Like, well, did you, did you go look where Homer said it was? Why would we do that? He's clearly lying to us. Right. Like, that's, a, that's, so, that's so freaking stupid. It is. It's, it's just it's such <laughs> a dumb thing. Um, and uh like and a lot of people will reference like the numbers given in battles where it's like mm. oh there were a million persians up against 10,000 greek soldiers and then you actually look into how that gets recorded especially for roman battles with how organized the roman legion was whenever a roman source is giving you the number of roman soldiers in a battle mm. They're only counting foot legionaries. Mm. They're not counting auxiliaries. They're not counting recruits. They're not counting the mounted equestrians. They're only counting foot legionaries. And then they're looking at the enemy army and they're counting everyone because they don't know who's who. And that's where we get these huge disparities in numbers and people, but people just look at, oh, 10,000 versus a million. That didn't happen. That's a lie. I'm ignoring what this person says. Mm. I feel like this could be a whole series of things like a podcast I could do about the um, the uh, it was science, it was philosophy, it was history, the anti whimsy people. Because I've been yeah. on a kick about the whole like no dragons were real. So, gay scientists in the 1800s labeled them more dinosaurs. Okay, just to deliberately de whimsify everything. Mm-hmm. Like this is this is so it seems like it seems even more apparent. It seems to be appealing more and more apparent to me. It's, it's, it's I don't know if it's like a, it's so it's so obvious and apparent now. I'm convinced there's some secret cabal of anti-whimsy nerds yes. who just hate everything, and um, you know where they are? <laughs> They're in the tunnels. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's 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 the same thing with biblical archaeology. People mm. read the book. Atheists look at the Bible and they assume that it's lying to them or it was written by idiots. Uh, Dawkins. And and now, yeah. And now, uh, with the nation state of Israel, they won't let Christians dig anywhere um, who are trying to prove things. They're, they're banning Christian archaeologists from even entering Israel because we want to actually prove the Bible happened. Um, but every time they do let us dig we find evidence that 
reinforces everything the Bible says. Mm. Um, we find coins with the names of high priests and prophets and kings on them from the Bible. And then the people who own the land get the phone call to shut it down. Um, the There's a guy, I don't know how true it is. He says he found the Ark of the Covenant. He got kicked out of Israel and hasn't been allowed back in for the last 30 years now. <laughs> uh, like, they won't even let him, like, he told people and they won't even let him go to where it's supposed to be. And this is the same guy who did find a ton of relics from the old temple, but he had to do it all semi-illegally because they didn't actually want him digging. I'm now just imagining like black ops archaeologists sneaking in on the cover at night. Um, yeah, like he did. He he would only dig at night and he found um, a bowl of incense from the from Solomon's temple. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, my dad uh, was on that dig actually and he was able to sneak a little bit of it out of the country in oh, a that's cool. uh, in an old uh film canister like back in the day so he opened that ass the film out and put incense from this pot that they dug up from solomon's temple into uh the film canister and brought it out because they don't x-ray <laughs> film canisters <laughs> tip for everyone uh they don't x-ray film canisters <laughs> uh oh oh that's gonna that's gonna affect that's it this is going you permanently see for record oh um, i'm sure <laughs> can't get any longer can it right um, i've already i've already seen what i wanted to see in israel i don't need to get back in there <laughs> um i want to ask you this is actually um I know this is like a, a field of study people have been trying to do more of lately is um, the Exodus, you know, where all the Jews leave in Egypt. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of atheists, a lot of uh, atheists, anti-Rimsy historians trying to say it never happened. Here's all the reasons why for it. The best argument I heard sadly came from Ben Shapiro, and it was that the Egyptians were really good propagandists. They never recorded a single loss. What do you take of that argument? Um, that as an argument that the exodus didn't happen because the Egyptians did happen. The Egyptians, did happen. It did happen, but we have no good evidence for it from the Egyptians because they don't record any losses. Yeah, that tracks um, with Egyptian history. But there's also, I, I think it's the transition from the 18th to 19th dynasty in Egypt. Mm-hmm. Um, people try to use, I believe it's those two. It might be the 17th to the 18th. It might be the 19th to the 20th. Um, but that transition people use a lot to say like, oh, this is what really happened because it lines up with the time period of the, when the Exodus was supposed to be. And Mm -hmm. the story of that transition is that, um, a large group of people came in of Semitic people came in from the North and like had a coup and took over Egypt. And then a new pharaoh took over, it started a civil war, and he kicked all of those people out of Egypt after the civil war with them. Um, And so people look at that and go, oh, see, that's what really happened. It was a civil war. It wasn't God doing a bunch of miracles and stuff. 
Um, and they weren't the Hebrews. They were just these random other Semitic people that never existed before or after and um, all this stuff. Uh, but you look at the perspective of the Egyptians on the Exodus, especially the ones who were alive after it happened. Mm -hmm. Joseph comes in. He's a slave from who knows where. And then he's vizier, second in command of the whole country. And then he brings his whole family in. That sounds a lot like a coup to me. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Um, and like, okay, they all become enslaved. That probably, like, the, the Bible doesn't tell us what that process looked like, but I can't imagine it was a peaceful transition into slavery for the children of the vizier. Mm. Uh, that's just my my two cents. No, that, that tracks. I, I like that. that. That seems reasonable to me. On that, yeah. Um, it, it's well, the same. History and science go hand in hand with that, where if you... Mm. Anything that disproves the Bible, I put that in air quotes that no one can see. Uh, <laughs> if you look at it for 30 seconds and apply some logic to it, you can see where it does fit with scripture. Mm. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's, that seems my, that's, my, <clears throat> that's my experience as well. It seems like every time I hear an argument, I'm like, well, that's... Let's think about that for 30 seconds, you know. What mm -hmm. is, is most atheist arguments nowadays, I feel like. Like, I got, I, I think you saw my rant earlier on Twitter about the whole religion is boils down to be a good person. It's like your entire oh. concept of good would not exist. So, right. <laughs> yes, I, I remember a while ago getting into an argument with a lady. She's like, I don't need the Bible to tell me what's right and wrong. I just follow the golden rule treat others the way I want to be treated. <laughs> Oh, I just want to That's a great Bible verse that. you got there. <laughs> oh, I want to. When someone says that, I want to strangle you for being <laughs> like you, you don't realize everything you believe would not exist if it was not you. You were not if you were not raised in the Ale Christianity belt. Mm -hmm. Shut up. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a similar thing. I was reading the other day where um, it was talking about how the average person today is so is at such a disadvantage when approaching history i'll, t I'll tie all this back in because mm -hmm. the bible itself is a historical document and it gives mm -hmm. you insight into almost four thousand years of history um from the garden to the roman empire period you're able to look at Many different regions, many different kinds of writing, different kinds of history, different kinds of poetry, and get in the mindsets of all these different people. Um, and I imagine it's somewhat like languages where uh, I haven't learned another language besides English successfully. But what I'm told is each language you learn makes it easier to learn the next one. Um, mm -hmm. When you're able to get into the mindset of one culture, it makes it easier to get into the mindset of another culture, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And so someone who's well-read in scripture has such a breadth of knowledge about ancient history to dive into it with off of that someone who hasn't read their Bible at all is just missing. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. That tracks. Um, 
I, I, I want to ask the last question I want to go to before we wrap it up. Um, it seems people, like I said earlier, they don't really uh, Zen Alpha doesn't really know anything about history, but then they see these TikToks or they see these memes, you know, about Napoleon or from the Roman helmet guy on TikTok. Or mm-hmm. surprisingly, there's a lot of really funny, really good like World War II Nazi propaganda on Twitter on TikTok. <laughs> I it's, I, they, I don't think any of them actually know what anything about the time period they just know it pisses out the people who are fat and ugly and so they go with it yeah um but it seems like how do i put this um they start studying his it seems like um when i was younger and people wanted to start studying history they picked something like a revolutionary war you know and it seems like people nowadays pick something like world war one or world war two to start their study um what what do you think it is that um, I put. I'm not going to say the question is though. It's just an observation I noticed that people are like are going back in my world. Everyone know about Revolutionary War. You know, everyone now everyone wants to know about Civil War. Now everybody wants to know about World War Two. You know, um, is it that people just can't think as far back, so they're just going to more recent events? These more recent events have more of an impact on today, so they're going into it or. Maybe it's that the, when I was younger, the Mistress of America was the Revolutionary War. Now the Mistress of America really does just seem FDR, World War One, World War Two time period. So they're going back to like, what do you think is the cause for people going back to these time periods instead of going back to Greece and Rome and um, uh, in, uh, medieval England and that kind of stuff? Like, what, what's the, if you had to guess, what would you think is happening? Um, I think it is about the um the looming specter of the past. Um, mm. When you, it, it, it's kind of like how a hundred years ago, yeah, a hundred years ago, people talked about Napoleon roughly the way we talk about Hitler now. Mm. Uh, Hit, Napoleon was evil incarnate. He ravaged Europe. He destroyed the lives of millions. He was a monster. A hundred years later, Napoleon, great general that many look back upon fondly because he got replaced in the, I don't know what term you want to use for it, but he was replaced (laughs) by Hitler, who's now the Mm -hmm. monster, killed millions, ravaged Europe. Mm -hmm. Um, And until we get um, something else, that's going to be the guy. And so our hero is again, in air quotes, is FDR, who stopped Hitler. Before, our hero was George Washington. Uh, For some, it was George Washington. For some, it would have been Abraham Lincoln, who saved the Union. I put that in air quotes again. Jared, (laughs) don't hate me. Um, uh, So people do really have a recency bias. And um, I think for the foreseeable future, it's going to be World War II. but we might get lucky and whoever comes after Trump uh, may be the new replacement is my <laughs> prediction. <laughs> mm. That'd be interesting. Cause I, I think anytime I see a lot of people like my, my cousin, you know, doesn't really know much, but he, uh, he doesn't really know a whole lot of history. Um, but he loves, uh, he loves World War II Germany because he loves the aesthetics. Yeah. He's a super lib pansexual. <laughs> <laughs> and he hate, loves like he's very supportive of like all everything you can't stand he's very supportive of but he's mm-hmm. constantly talking about hitler <laughs> which is very it's very funny I mean, um 
that makes me think almost of uh, when they were talking about AIDS patient zero and doing all those reports. And they're like, yeah, all of the gays who died of AIDS first were the ones who go out in Nazi gear and all of that <laughs> stuff. Uh, and it's just like the aesthetic is appealing to everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't imagine. I can't imagine studying World War II without having at least a really good grasp of World War One, if not with the Treaty of Versailles and everything after World War One. You know, and if you study World War One, you got to just get into how that really was a war between democracy and the monarchies. Mm-hmm. Um, and if anyone wants the great stuff on World War One, anything by Eric von Knoll-Leden, anything yep. by that guy, like Monarchy He's and great. War, is I think I read Monarchy and War maybe more than I think Plato's Symposium and Monarchy and War are my most read books. Yeah. And Monarch and War is just incredible. Yep. Um, very, very good book. So anyone should check it out. Um, so I think so, it's on Mises Institute. I think it's for free. So I, I, I don't know YouTube yeah. from Skeptical Waves for free. So you can it take it take uh, it out today or tomorrow. It's really good. That kind of gets into what we talked about at the beginning of the show, though. Uh, studying history forwards or backwards. Mm. Um, if you study it backwards, you're going to be confused, but you get the answer to your question immediately. Mm-hmm. Um if you study history forwards from the beginning to today, at no point will you be confused as to why things are happening, but you, whatever question you started with doesn't get answered until you've learned thousands of years of history. <laughs> this is a, no, I have one more final question. I was, I was listening okay. to, um, oh, what's it called? Old Sunder, which was um, Joseph Pierce wrote a biography of Hilaire Belloc. Okay. Anyone who took it out, it's really good because really, it delves a lot into Belloc's personal life and a lot more of like his friends and his um, family issues. And he, Belloc traveled a lot. I don't know if you know the story or not, but when he was like 19, he, he wanted to go see, he met a girl once, one to marry her. And the mom said, no, she's going to be a nun and took her to California. And so he went on a boat from um, England to New York and then hitchhiked across America by singing songs and telling poems. <laughs> <laughs> So just a cool dude. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, Belloc wrote a lot of history books, and a lot of the modern historians hated him because they simply thought he was a propagandist for Rome. <laughs> um, and there was some older historian who boasts everyone kind of respected who wrote an essay defending Belloc, but it was like, we've had our time as um, propagandists against Rome. It's time Rome has their defender. <laughs> and that's how we defended Belloc. Which I actually I loved that. Um and made me think about how much history, because it has such a history has such a like, uh, political implications. At least it did back then. I think it has today, but a lesser extent. Um, how much history being written at the times is more? Is like, history needs to be educational propaganda? And propaganda is education, but I mean like in the strict sense of propaganda. Um, so much of history is kind of just like I'm going to interpret these facts in a way that is cool and beneficial to what I believe, or I can interpret these facts very strictly and leave my own bias out of it. I don't think anyone really can leave the bias out of it. So you're going to have, I think, I'd rather have a, a um, I'd rather read someone like, um, let's say, what's his name? Uh, Yuval Noah Harris, the guy who wrote Sapiens. Okay. Um, he's straight up propagandist for materialism and atheism and all the other terrible stuff in his book on human evolution. I'd rather read that and know what his biases are, and so we read some we read Bellock's book on the Reformation, where I know what his biases are towards Protestantism, then read someone who tries to claim they have no biases and sneaks in their um, yeah. little biases in, you know? But yeah, 
what's your take on the whole like history being his uh historians often double often can double his propagandist what's your take oh, on that 100 percent um every historian has a bias and that bias is as simple as why am i writing this down why does this matter mm -hmm. to me and even if you write an unbiased account of something the details you include and the details you leave out are reinforcing the story you want to tell mm. um it, it reminds me of the the quote from 1984 whoever controls the past controls the future and if you control mm. the future you control the past mm. um, and it gets into like what are real banned books um, <laughs> not, the ones, not the ones you can buy in barnes and noble uh, on a yeah. shelf that says banned books. Uh, I see those and I run to it and I pray to God I will find someone to snuggle camp with the saints. <laughs> it, <wouldn't laughs> it would never happen. But That's one day like, I, I want to find it. How much does a copy of that run for now? Like a thousand bucks, I think. Yeah, I'm not leaving that on a Barnes and Noble as a no. prank. Um, <sighs> but yeah, so it, it, it's even the details you include and the details you leave out are biased. Mm -hmm. Like if I if you're writing the story of someone's life and you think what they ate for breakfast every morning is important, that's your bias. If you mm -hmm. think it's not, you're leaving it out, right? Regardless of mm -hmm. what else, any political thoughts you have on the issue. So yes, having someone with an overt and known bias is a lot less dangerous than someone who claims to have none it's kind of like uh captain jack sparrows uh a dishonest man you can trust to be dishonest an honest man you never know when they're gonna do something very stupid yes um it reminds me of this book that like life is a, a life is a story there's narratives history is a narrative and i wasn't have my history told me but told me by a also who's gonna tell me a narrative then someone is just gonna try to tell me the facts Mm -hmm. and the facts interpreted through that lens. Um, yeah. This is why I think C.S. Lewis, whenever he does write about, um, like he sneaks little historical lessons in, is, is very good at Because mm -hmm. I think he's good at everything he writes. Yeah. Uh, except for the, except for my hot take, I can't stand the screw tape letters. Really? I don't know what it is. I can't... I think it's, I think it's just too on the nose. You know? Yeah. It's just too... I think when Peter Creech wrote his like, little 21st century version of it, it's just too in your face you know yeah but also i love narnia because of how in your face azalean is jesus so i don't know maybe i'm just conflicted maybe i'm just a contradiction here but it's funny because screw tape letters was his least favorite to write as well mm. um he said he hated writing it and he got people asked him all the time for a sequel and he said nope <laughs> never doing it didn't like writing it don't want to write it again face <laughs> Um, and and I want to repeat, repeat a meme. I don't know if you saw the meme or not, but it was um someone. It was a meme of uh, some student asking Zayor Token, like Mr. Professor Token, was was a Lord of the Rings an allegory for your time in World War One? And he was literally never say it to me again, or I'll kill you. <laughs> um, and it was C.S. Lewis saying, if not every single reader gets that Azalean is Jesus, I'm gonna light myself on fire. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. It, it, it's also like the uh, how they included each other in their stories. <laughs> it's like, hey, I, hey, C.S. Lewis, I put you in my book, or uh, hey, Tolkien, I put you in my book. Oh, that's cool. What am I? You're this old professor who's really nice and knows everything and has been on a bunch of adventures and helps everyone out. 
and Tolkien goes, oh, I put you in my book too, C.S. Lewis. What am I? You're this old tree that talks for a long time and never gets to the point. <laughs> I would say I, I finally read the part of the, the two towers that have tree build, and I read the part of uh, the line with, with the head professor, and knowing that made me love those characters even more. Oh, yeah. Uh, last question. I've always said it twice now, but last question, not by history. Uh, two, it's, a, it's, a, it's a double question. Favorite Lewis book, favorite Narnia book? Okay. My favorite C.S. Lewis book is The Abolition of Man. Oh, uh, that's a good one. I, I read that for the first time last week. Yeah. Uh, I have I read that about every six months. <laughs> um, especially working in education. I read mm. that about every six months. Um, I think it's phenomenal. Um, favorite Chronicles of Narnia book. Um, oh, it's been a bit since I read through the series at all. Um, I have very, very fond memories of Voyage of the Dawn Shredder. Mm. Um, the last battle is probably the best, in my opinion, but mm -hmm. I, I have very fond memories of Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Mm. I think for me, favorite Lewis book is a tie between The Four Loves and that I think it's the second lecture essay in Weight of Glory when he's talking to the students at Oxford about okay. how academics would behave during wartime. Yeah. I love that one in the four loves. If you go on uh, anyone listening, go on Scribd. They have um the four loves from Lewis, where he it's a it's a four part audio lecture he recorded on it, and it's in his voice, and it's really fun. Um, um if you, another source for anyone looking for anything by C.S. Lewis, Project Gutenberg, mm. um, has all of his books. Mm. And a favorite Narnia book is a tie. Again, it's hard for me to pick a favorite. I love the Magician's nephew because it's so whimsical, and I could not. I I think I, I started the Horse and His Boy this morning, and I've never I've never tried to put a book on times three speed because I can't <laughs> understand it. But I wanted just to know everything that was going to happen, and so I ended up pushing like times two point five. I'm like, I just gotta get, I gotta know what happens. So, I gotta know yeah. what happens. It's so good. Uh, I love the Magician's nephew also because everyone talks about how. Um, have you read? The Space Trilogy. Once I finished Narnia and Lord of the Rings, then it's the Space Trilogy. Okay. Space Trilogy is fantastic. The third book of it, That Hideous Strength, is just a novel version of The Abolition of Man. Mm. Um, super, super good. Um, but if you read The Abolition of Man and The Magician's Nephew right back to back, The Magician's Nephew also <laughs> hits those beats incredibly mm. well in a story form for children and that mm. is what he lewis is the master of he really is of, of all those like 20th century people like lewis token belloc chesterton most of the thing I, I have the most fun with chesterton i think i would i would get the most out of talking to lewis mm -hmm. i think he's he's just he's He's something else, you know. He's also it's so easy to read, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I have like I have my complaints with Lewis is that I think He's arguing. He's he can afford to be that simplistic in his writing because he's so smart. People now don't get how deep his writing is, and try to just keep them 
Mere Christianity is a great book, but it led to the ideas of mere Christianity and modern discourse. And what is now just like, well, all you really need is the mere basics of like, you know, Bible, Jesus is, Jesus, Jesus is real, he's God, and nothing else. And I think that's been a disaster. And so I love Lewis. I think the, some of the, his popularity, in the same way, like, um, you know, you know what Pascal's weights are? Yeah. Okay, so the actual Pascal's Wazer versus the bumper sticker of Pascal's Wazer is words apart. <laughs> Lewis and most Lewis people today are words apart. <laughs> yes. And so I had a very, growing up, I had a very, like, I had disdain for Lewis because I never actually read him. I just knew people told me he said. I'm like, but you, that doesn't sound smart coming from you. Then you actually know more and you go back to it. Okay, I see why you're saying it because you know all these other things as well. And it makes yeah. sense now. But when they like, say it and misquote it, it's not good. Mere Christianity was fantastic because it was a radio show that anyone was supposed to be able to listen to any part of it without listening to the previous parts and get what he's talking about. Mm. That should not be the basis of your faith. Yes, absolutely. Um, Like it was the the broadcast talks, what they were called originally, that was the Mm. second most listened to radio show in britain during world war ii the only thing that got more listeners was winston churchill's updates wow like I people know that. yeah people don't real like everyone was listening to c.s lewis so the broadcast talks that was like primetime news ended then c.s lewis was on <laughs> That's cool, but also it, it reinforces my point that it was it was the most for public audiences at any time kind of thing. Right, like that you know, was supposed and, to be something anyone in England could listen to, and be, no matter what their yeah. background was, and get what he was talking about. Mm. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Zim. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. We we'll have to have you on. I need to have you on again so we can have to talk about Florida history, the history of Florida education, and what happened yeah. to it. <laughs> Because that's yeah. going to be exciting. I'm looking forward to that one. Uh, what we're, we're doing? Explain to me. Like, explain like I'm five. Why I have I can just ask some basic questions. We'll go from there. Okay. Um, but give yeah, me plugs. Uh, any final thoughts? Any little tips you want to give someone starting to study history? And then final thoughts. And plugs. Uh, not just just find what you love and then learn what there is to know about it. Um, mm-hmm. That that that's really what it is. What what do you like doing? Figure out where it came from. Um, and just recognize people from before they weren't stupid they're not trying to trick you and where can people find you at uh martyr jim on twitter uh yeah <laughs> fantastic well uh jim thank you for coming on everybody thank you for listening I don't have much planned. I know Ayn and Bode are doing the next part of the Mauritan book series soon. And David Brady and I are going to do a C.S. Lewis podcast. And I bought – I tip to everybody. I went, I picked, I ordered on Amazon Turkish Delights for the podcast. Okay. And so that's going to be – I had one today. 10 out of 10 would betray my family to the White Wits. <laughs> 10 out of 10. That's Fully great. get it. Um, but everyone, thanks for listening. Have a good night. <laughs>